This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Kevin McDonough, welcome to the show, sir. How are you today? Doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well, man. Are you uh, still in the middle of recruiting? Yeah, we're finishing up our 22 class and and kind of really starting to work on lists on 23s now. Do you enjoy recruiting or is it something that's just kind of part of the job? It's something I enjoy. Um, It wasn't like part of the reason I got into coaching and it ended up becoming something that I really started enjoying as I learned more about it. I'm a people person. I mean, I, I guess that's part of coaching, but then like getting, going around, meeting people, getting to kind of really see what makes them tick, what their goals are. And then um, coaching comes down to relationships. And then really it's the start of it. You get to see somebody at 17, 18, and then really take them, make those next steps in their formative years of like, they have an idea of like, Hey, I want to get into business. I want to get into engineering. And then all of a sudden really give them those tools and then the lessons that come from it too, you know, just really have an impact on somebody's life from an early and developmental point, you know, help them develop and be functioning members of society. Yeah. It's kind of weird because it feels like you mentioned how if you're a people person, it kind of feels instinctual, but it almost kind of seems as if recruiting is one of those things, no matter how much of a people person you are, you really have to do it more and more to become really adept at it. Yeah. Definitely. And I mean, I think it's constantly evolving. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, shoot the way recruiting is going now with um, transfer portal, uh, NIL kind of turned everything on up, uh, upside down um, where conversations that you never really thought you were having. I know Link Kippen just made a comment recently about how we've got free agency in college football. And it, it seems like it, like we've had people ask about it now in, in recruiting in the Ivy league, um, you know, is my son going to be able to transfer out and what are the odds of making like a bigger school? So, I mean, it kind of turns some of the smaller schools into feeder programs. Um, but you got to stay on top of that. I know before I got to Cornell, I was uh, a group recruiting and graphics grad assistant at, at Toledo. Mm-hmm. And it was something at that point was still kind of like newer on, on the recruiting market was basically like, sending graphics is different form of communication. Hey, different ways to send people mail, um, those sorts of things, kind of individualized art for lack of a better term. And kids ate it up and some kids didn't like it. So it, it's all individualized. Um, honestly, I learned a lot about recruiting going back to uh, during college and even in high school and then fresh out of college looking for a job or just a side job. I used to wait tables, was a bus boy. And it kind of came down to like uh how you'd serve a table. Each customer is kind of different. They're looking for different things. Some people want you to talk to them because they're there by themselves. Some people want just really good service. This is what you're going to get. And cool. Thanks for getting it to me. And it, you kind of got to feel it out. So it's, it's, it's cool. It's, it's definitely a different, different thing. And I mean, it, it varies too. Like you go to the NFL, those guys recruit to a point in free agency. So. Yeah. It's like, you're always selling something. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how you had to have like that human psychology aspect of it, because you need to learn how to read people and see what they respond to. Cause not everybody is going to respond to the same sort of methods or the same personalities. 
And I think that's really interesting too, how you talk about in college, it's becoming like the smaller schools are feeder programs for the bigger schools. Cause it's always been looked, the NCAA as a whole has always been looked at as the feeder program for the NFL, obviously. But now it's like adding a whole another dimension where you have the smaller schools that are really going to be providing for like the bigger power five conference schools too. I mean, a while ago, I had a chance to talk to a JUCO coach who obviously they always are confronted with that problem, but you know, there's something they've been doing for a while. So they pretty much know their place and the whole pipeline of things. So I'm, that's curious how you guys are going to have to like adjust and pivot to that, that point of view. It's, it's definitely interesting. Like um, as the portal kind of, and with grad transfer um, started, like, I think everybody, I can't remember the big one. I remember first was like Russell Wilson, you know, mm-hmm. going from NC state to, to Wisconsin. But like the edit, at least in the Ivy, it stuck out to me. A lot of guys have started kind of making the jump. I can't remember his name. The center for LSU was, was a transfer from, from Harvard. Mm. Um, we've got a couple guys in the portal. And like those are the big schools. Everyone thinks of that. But then even like um, my first year coaching tight ends here, we had a tight end transfer out um, who was able to get a free MBA. And like, did he go to a power five school? No, but it was it was just interesting to see like, all right, he he got an Ivy League degree. Now he's going to go get a free Masters. He gets to play it. Um, keep playing football. Really is what it comes down to. Um, and it, I mean, he's finished now, and he's he's all set with a job. So it's it kind of works for everybody. I, I I don't know if I'm supposed to say stuff like this, but it seems like the systems at least helping the kids a little bit more, which is good. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more economics coming into play. Certainly. So, like I mentioned, whenever I reached out, man, your Twitter page is like one of my top go tos. I don't spend a huge time on social media, but you're one of the few when I do go on, I actively type in your page to see what you're putting up there. And it's cool to be able to see, you know, people like you on Twitter, because I get like a a good passionate sense of football history and just football in general. So before we go deeper into the page and the process of doing that, man, can you kind of walk me through your journey within football a little bit in terms of, I guess, how you grew to love the game and ultimately what drove you to coaching? Yeah. Um, first off, appreciate the love of the page that started as like a hobby. So that's, that's interesting to see how many people ended up liking it. Um, but kind of grew up um, from New York city uh, down Staten Island, Southern part of the city grew up kind of, always outdoors doing something sport related, whether that was pick up baseball game, handball, um, just riding bikes around doing something. And then it always turned into competitive stuff like, Hey, beat you there faster. Um, so always kind of enjoyed those things. Um, ended up playing high school football, um, loved the sport, had a really good experience, had really good teammates, really good coaches. Um, you know, obviously wasn't, uh, the best of schools in here in New York city. It ain't like, going to some school out in Cali or Florida or Georgia, one of these big football states, but just really good experience. We played against good teams, um, had a lot of fun. Honestly, uh, wasn't the best student, was really focused on more um, the football aspect of stuff. I knew that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to teach history when I was graduating high school and coach high school football, you know, just had a good experience, wanted to keep doing that, um, give that experience to other people. Um, Just because I grew to love the game and the strategy and the camaraderie. But then ended up going to a four-year city school that didn't have any football or any program, anything like that. Um, coached high school ball my first year out. We, were, we did not do really well. The kids were awesome, learned a ton, um, realized how bad I was. And even, like, I understood concepts. But as far as, like, teaching, it's like, man, this is, this is not good. 
um, was waiting tables as I, had, as I had mentioned, and then uh, transferred into SUNY Cortland. Had a really good experience there. Was trying out uh, to play on the team. You take a year off from football, especially when you're not a great player to begin with. Not really conducive to being on a competitive uh, team at any level, even D three, especially D three. So then um, tried out and like an open trial got cut, but still knew I wanted to be a part of that. Wanted to learn as much as I could while I was working on my degree to teach. So was a student manager there, had a really cool experience. Um, uh, made the playoffs one year, worked with some really good guys, really good coaches, learned a ton from Coach Mack, the head coach there, Coach Potter, Coach Adams, Coach Ross, because there's a ton, too many good guys to name. Um, and then ended up graduating. They were able to set me up at that point. The Jets were doing training camp there. Um, with an internship so the last two years I was there spent the summers doing equipment internships with the Jets um, got to watch Rex Ryan's teams practice like just after the playoff runs which was really cool um, got to see a lot of guys I remember growing up like seeing Mike Vick running around was awesome Antonio Cromartie um, cool experience there so graduate student teach coach high school ball out here while I was student teaching had a really good experience there and was pretty much all set I'd switched over to phys ed um, was looking at sub jobs, got another high school job there and uh, was applying to some college jobs. I wanted to see if I could chase and get a, a free master's out of it. Went, um, ended up hearing back from a college up in upstate New York, College of Brockport, from a guy I worked with at Cortland. And he gave me a shot to go up there and, and learn to coach, you know, college athletes, which was different. I was 22, 23, and I was coaching one of our corners was older than me. You know, right. like a lot of kids were around my age. So it was just a good experience, you know, really good in the sense of like had some experience, some knowledge, but definitely like if I went in there thinking like I knew everything, the kids wouldn't have really bought into it. So it was good to tell them, like, hey, if I don't have the answer for you, I can find it. Starting recruiting there, um, worked with some really good guys, Coach Mangoni, Coach Potter again um, was over there now as the OC. And then uh, Mike Fox was our DC my second year there. They ended up going on some pretty good runs, had a final four run, made the playoffs a bunch really um, making strides to that program. But, uh, after two years there, basically was about halfway done with my degree. Um, started applying for jobs again, just to kind of make some new connections. Um, you know, learn a little bit more different experiences was able to get a job with Toledo off the field, as I mentioned off the field, uh, which was awesome. Really good experience. 2017, we had a loaded team and it was fun going there and learning a ton. It was, different because I wasn't doing coaching on the field mm. being in the film room break um bringing down film we got to watch a lot of film work with some awesome guys um was really able to kind of step back and, and kind of learn nitty-gritty stuff and got a lot better at video editing which has helped me get jobs in the past or in the future then after um so then uh was finishing up my GA there I needed an internship to graduate and I got an opportunity to go work at Cornell as a defensive intern um, a guy I knew, Jordan Hogan, was the receivers coach at the time. Uh, he had set me up with our DC coach, Backus, and we got there in 18, was able to do the internship, work for the season as basically like a GA, QC type guy. Um, really got to dig in more, you know, do grunt work, be seen, not heard. If you're asking a question, have an opinion. And got really lucky. Coach Archer and the staff here really embraced me and had an opening, and I was able to jump in full time. and kind of jump all over so it's it's been good uh to make a long story long there uh, it's been a really cool cool weird path it's uh hopefully still going 
did any of the of the stuff that you saw at the Jets camp, like because obviously Rex Ryan had was at the time a great defensive mind. Like, did what did any of that kind of help your development in terms of learning about defense that kind of came in handy when you got that internship position? Um yes and no. Like I, I was able my second year there, I was able to help out with um Coach April, uh Bobby April. I think he's with Wisconsin now working for Jim Leonard. Okay. And he was he was a linebackers coach and um nfl training camps are, are pretty cool in the sense of like the guy's families are around a lot so i think he was working out might have been marty morning son mm. his son was a db he's a linebackers coach but he's giving them db drills and they're going over footwork and you know as an intern you're basically like anyone says jump you just start jumping until they they say all right that's high enough right. but there are points like if he's working out somebody's kid i can ask a question after if i had some time so it's like Hey, I noticed you did this step, this or there. Like, I wasn't going to bother him always coaching NFL players. I'm there, I'm there to spot a ball. Mm-hmm. But, like, if I see an opening like that, so that actually helped me as a DB coach at Brockport. Like, oh, I got this footwork from Coach April, and this is what they were doing over, over when he was coaching these guys up. And he learned this from, I think he learned it at Lafayette when he was playing. So it was just not in the way you'd think. But then also, it, it definitely helped as far as evaluation then, like, um as far as athleticism you know you, you see you see Antonio Cromartie move around it's like all right that guy's way different and then you go coach D3 and it's like all right I'm not gonna find a guy that looks like that but you know his hip mobility or his feet um where his eyes were different things like that you can kind of pick up but just through observation similar to Toledo as far as just kind of being a fly on the wall and, and seeing how things operate and, and everywhere I've been not just those places now, as far as being a GA, I mean, obviously everyone has their own unique experience, but I imagine the life of a GA, there's probably a lot of things that anybody can relate to who's been in that position. So, like, how would you kind of summarize the experience of being a graduate assistant? <laughs> um, uh, no job too small. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even as uh, an intern, you know, working with the defense, defense here at Cornell. Um, you know, it could be something as simple as like, um, you might have to go pick up food at Walmart. You might be going on an airport run, picking up people. Hey, you might need to break something down. Um, you know, really anything that's kind of asked, you, you're going to be doing that. And that's, um, coach Backus, RDC, awesome. But he does a really, did a really good job as when I was an intern of doing like GA type work, like, simple things like hey man like you could be the head coach of this supply desk right like everything could be neat and organized and it'd be great you're in charge of it mm-hmm. and it, it, no job's really too small and it's like well if you can't keep the supply desk good how can you do this so like um that's really the thing that kind of stuck out was like everything you were doing and i, I know a bunch of coaches say it every day's an interview and it's like if you can't do little things like that, right? Like how can I trust you to go on the road, recruit somebody or how can I trust you to teach technique? It's like, you can't keep the supply desk clean. Like, so it's like, the, it's like the little details that kind of separates a good GA from a great GA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the big one, the prior experiences that me up here at Cornell, I think that helped were, um, I do think guys that go to like a D3 school where you're doing GA work, you're taking classes but you also have to coach a room, you know, like, all right, Hey, when I'm coaching DBs, I like to have this ready. So I knew our DB coach here at Cornell, like, Hey, I ran these reports for you. I don't know if you use them, but like, 
I know I used to use these and sometimes they pick your brain, like just having stuff ready. So that way they don't need to look for it. Those, they have those clear expectations they're looking for. And if you can add a little extra, they might throw it out. They might not, it might mm-hmm. be something they end up liking. So it, just can you, what kind of value can you add? Do you add value to the program? Yeah, it, it is interesting to kind of see like how people will go the extra mile, especially in what seems to be like a really exclusive business like coaching football, especially at the collegiate level. Yeah, there's definitely some stress. There's definitely some moments. And then there's, there is camaraderie about it too, in mm-hmm. the sense of like, uh, usually you're, especially if you're GAing, you're around the other GAs a lot. So, you know, they're kind of going through it. Yeah. Um, as long as everybody's carrying their weight, usually you help each other out. And then same thing with, um, you know, they talk about uh, the coaching profession. Everybody, for the most part, even if they haven't GA'd, they've done a job where they were, everybody started on the bottom at some point. So everybody remembers it. So coaches do a really good job of like, they can kind of sense, same thing with their players, you know, if you're having a bad day or they tore in you, it's like, hey, we just got to get this right for them and they'll, they'll lift you up. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of compassion in the coaching community, at least in my experiences, I've been lucky. Yeah, certainly. Now, as far as like coaching, uh, like tight ends, I mean, is this something, is this the first time you've coached on the offensive side of the ball? Um, I coached one year of high school receivers. I wanted to coach linebackers and they had two linebacker coaches. They needed somebody to coach receivers. It's my first time doing it then at a high school. Mm-hmm. So then came here. Um, and then the year at Toledo was really good to kind of study everything, you know, special teams, offense, defense. Um, so first time coaching, uh, in, in the core blocking it was first time coaching tight ends, but had some background there. Um, and then had some good resources, you know, um, our OC coach, uh, Joe Vilpiano mm-hmm. was the tight ends coach before that. So he gave me all of his info, our head coach, coach Archer, um, who shoot, he, he got his first head coaching job. He's hired as the head coach of Cornell at 30. So like, uh, you know, he, he's used to dealing with that experience as in, uh, a younger guy. And then he coached tight end. So he would talk me through some stuff. That's um, Nate, Nate Pagan at, at Villanova helped me out a bunch. He was a guy from Cortland that I knew was coaching tight ends there. So I was able to kind of pick a lot of brains. Um, and then the thing, even going back to the account, the internet, it's, it's crazy how, how many resources are available. Like you can watch five hours of, of, of tight end clips like that just by searching on YouTube. Everybody's pretty good about sharing stuff. And even if you don't take everything, there'll be a, a piece here or there you want to take. Yeah. It's a wonder like how the people used to get information back in the day. I mean, whenever I see stuff like, uh, you know, obviously stuff on Twitter, but then there's more stuff like huddle and other resources like that. It's just crazy to think how now the community has expanded this big. Whereas people, I feel like you had to travel to certain coaches' houses back, and you know, even as early as the early 2000s, to kind of pick their brain if they didn't go to clinics. Yeah, that's true. You used to have to send tape. You have to either meet up for tape, or you used to have to send out DVDs, VHSs. Even more recently, that's what I've talked to kids after, uh, like my first couple of years of coaching, watching huddle highlights of some of the kids. They're like, "I'll pull up so and so's tape." And it's like, I have a DVD, and they looked at him like he had seven heads. Like. <laughs> it ain't that long ago man <laughs> yeah man yeah time time definitely travels fast now before we one last question before we go into the account like 
being that you're like a football history guy, do you feel like a certain privilege being able to coach at an Ivy League school? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll be honest, I never thought of myself as a football history guy, um, but I, I enjoy um, just the history that does go with it. The mm-hmm. Ivy League, really just any of these schools that have a, a ton of tradition and, and it's the Ivies are interesting just because like Ray Crowder was at Penn, you know, mm-hmm. um, Pop Warner. I tell guys when we get them on campus, you know, the forward, the guy who invented the forward pass went here and been in most of football. So just the history that goes with that. Um, I still think the Ivy might lead the, uh, all conferences, and national titles still it hasn't competed in scholarship ball since the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. um, ton of Heisman's including a Marinero run as the runner up in the seventies, like ton of history. And it's just really cool to be a part of it and um, have that kind of right there in the backyard and at all these games. And then everybody talks about rivalries. It's nothing like a rivalry that goes back a hundred plus, 120 plus years. So it's really cool there. Now, with, in terms of uh, the old football film Twitter account, I mean, you mentioned that this was something that kind of took on a life of its own. So like, where did the idea first come from to begin with, to want to do something like this? Um, so basically uh, during the pandemic, everybody kind of hit a point where they started just watching a lot of film and had watched a lot of our stuff on repeat, ton of teach tapes, you know, doing normal off season stuff. Um, ended up uh, finding some old single wing and double wing stuff. Um, kind of just looking through some old Cornell stuff, looking for stuff for social media to, for recruiting. Mm-hmm. And then found even more stuff after that. I was like, man, this is pretty cool. Uh, the high school I went to, we ran 32 personnel power every down. We ran it. We were power, counter, and toss. There was, I think play action pass we ran twice, twice a game, if that. So we had a single wing package they installed the year after. Um, another high school in league, I think, has been running the single wing since the 30s um, out in Manhattan. So I knew about it, but never really dove in on, like, the history of it. And then just kind of became enamored. And it was, like, trying to like, keep track of, like, YouTube clips of, like, oh, I like this, I like this. Maybe there's some some something here that relates to like something currently happening in football, um, and then so ended up started having a list of all these YouTube marks and videos. It's like I gotta put this somewhere, so I just started tweeting it. I made an account and just started tweeting it. So basically, I had something that I had like it was it was gonna be basically a cut up for me to just look back on of like all right, yeah, I got this, I got this, and then all of a sudden a bunch of people started like retweeting it and replying all of a sudden there's people following it It was supposed to be something just i was using and then uh it ended up it kind of took a life of its own and then still use it like the trick play of the day um basically just became a bank at one point i had been asked like hey you got any good trick plays this week and i didn't have any ready back to like what what makes a good ga so it's like i better have some of these ready what's a good way for me to have these and at that point people would follow and so i know um other people are probably looking to, I know some people used them. People have sent me that, Hey, we've got this from whatever clip. So yeah, that's you, totally by accident. Do you ever take any of the trick plays you see and recommend them to the coach? Um, I have. And then that kind of got uh, a little tricky in season then, because then it was like, all right, I need to make sure I don't do anything similar to this, this week on trick play of the day now. So. Right. So um, your opponent may be watching. <laughs> um, I've, I've, other Ivy League coaches have, have reached out and sent me trick plays. So it's like, I got to wow. be careful when I post. That was before the season started. So it's like, uh, 
catch 22. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah. the trick play last week, I think, with uh, UTEP and San Jose, the fake quarterback sneak. Yeah, that was, that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome, man. I was in a bar, and it wasn't a sports bar. It was just like a, a hotel that was – or a restaurant that was attached to a hotel. And I saw that play, and I'm going crazy. And I could just see people looking at me like, why is this asshole getting so excited about UTEP? But it's <laughs> like I, I only seen – I've only seen a fake QB sneak a couple times. One was like Drew Bledsoe. When he was at the Bills, he ran one with uh, – he tossed it back to Willis McGahee. But I've never seen cool. – yeah, but I've never seen a formation like this where it's like they're all bunched up and he just kicks a step, backs up, and launches it. Plays like that are cool, man. It's like the, the reason why I really love your page too is because like you see football at such a more ragtag stage in a certain sense. It feels a lot more like a carnival, a lot of deception, a lot of uh, window dressing, I guess you could say. And it's just kind of interesting to dive into that where it feels so structured, but at the same time, it doesn't. Yeah, that's that play was awesome because they basically ran before that, like just a scrum. They just snapped to him and pushed him big, big sneak there and then had that off there. But that was something that kind of snuck out to me. Like you're saying, it's a little more ragtag But then when, when you do dig in, it's still the same game for the most part. Are there changes in blocking? Is there changes in the athletes? Absolutely. Like that's, that's the big one. I know a lot of people um, have commented on clips like this wouldn't work now. It's like, well, Probably not, but the same structure is there. Like I know, um, like you're saying, as far as the ragtagness, the Delaware wing T is one that sticks out to me. I've had a bunch of people reach out to that, and that goes back to the wing, single wing Michigan was running, and they, they ran Fritz Coastal ran at Princeton too. The same thought process with that offense is still kind of what we're seeing now with the RPO game. Like you look at a lot of people will basically combine if you talk to like Joe Moorhead or some of these RPO like guru coaches mm-hmm. we're going to combine our inside zone or power blocking with this pass concept on the outside here's our outlet here's our shot they would combine the same thing as far as run game blocking or like a play action blocking and then have different deceptive backfield actions so it's like same concept of like almost like a Mo, jomo would talk about with like a chipotle offense you know hey you can change the rice you can change the meat but there's only so many combinations you can do to make the same things look different. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing with backfield action and blocking or formation. Um, it seems like too, like, um, I mean, even people who ran out of like the T formation when they would toss it back to the halfback and he had the option to run or pass it to a receiver downfield, or I guess in the split to, yeah, a quarterback could also keep it if he was sliding down the line. So it's interesting how like certain concepts are just kind of re-manifest itself in a different era. Yeah. And that's what was funny. Like the RPO, I remember when I first like started seeing downfield throws off the, those actions, like it didn't kind of combine with like halfback pass in my mind. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the term RPO Bill Yeoman has in his, in his playbook, Bear Bryant's talked about him. Um, sh- shoot. Uh, the sprint, sprint right option from the catch mm-hmm. was essentially, Hey, QB, you're going to run it unless this is open, then you're going to throw downfield. Same thing uh, off the Packers sweep. Vince Lombardi talked about, the halfback option, hey, the safety's triggering, we'll just tag a throw on it. And so it's like the same concepts that you're saying have been there the whole time. It's just not something people are used to seeing. And and football's it's interesting because it's so historical. The game goes back 150 years, but also like it's short-sighted in that sense too of things that are common in the early 2010s 
aren't as common now that might be working their way back. Um, shoot, I remember in college, we'd still get under center and go in the eye pretty normally. And then mm-hmm. by the time I graduated college, we were up tempo spread. And then teams are starting to shift now back to 12 personnel and under center a little bit more. So it, it, it goes cyclically and then people notice things and that the people that they used to do, used to have done and you kind of run with them. It's, well, that's kind of the interesting thing about like going back to the internet, especially with YouTube, being able to watch, especially high school games, because high school, you'll still see, obviously, like you mentioned, schools that still run a pure single wing, double wing, I guess, a Notre Dame box in some cases. Um, so you get to see like a whole new brand of football that went extinct in after 1930 or after 1940. I mean, you just mentioned Vince Lombardi. I think there was a quote that he had where uh, someone asked him, if you face a single wing team, how would you guys do? And he said, we get killed because if you never see it, you're never going to prepare for it. Yeah. And it's like, it's like some high school coaches I've read too. Like they won't even play against double wing or single wing teams because their kids aren't going to play that or go up against that when they go to college. So they don't want to waste the time teaching that, I guess you could say. That's, that's interesting. I mean, it it's, it's football. It's fun. I, I mean, at least from my perspective, that type of football is fun to, to play in or play against. Yeah. I'm not sure how it affects recruiting everywhere. I know we recruit guys from flexbone offenses, seen guys in T offenses. Other questions. Yeah. But there's questions about every recruit coming out, um, you know? So, I mean, I don't know how that affects it from a recruiting perspective, but that's uh, that was the funny thing watching the Patriots in uh, last year when they had cam because mm-hmm. they would go heavy and run single wing power. Yeah. And it ended up being the, the final play of the game against the Seahawks. Yeah. And they, we they got tackled on the goal line there, but they couldn't stop it all day. It was like, yeah. it was hard for people to figure out when the wildcat came around, which was basically the same thing, you know, just sequenced, um, extra gap runs in the NFL well, didn't know what to do. So it, it, it's interesting there. I know UCLA, I think is, has, combines a ton of that stuff in their offense right now. And they've, they've done pretty well with it. Yeah. I had this, uh, I got this book like a month ago. It's called the, the modern short punt. That's awesome. And I've, I've never actually have seen anybody run this kind of an offense. You know, I go through like it, the book is a little different than what I thought an actual like a short punt formation would be but um sometimes like when i'm going through youtube and i'll see football games ironically enough in japan from like the 80s they're running a lot of like these short punt formations where the quarterback is like seven yards deep and he has two backs in front of him and sometimes they'll have a blocking back directly behind the guard in front of one of them so it's just interesting to see like how obviously for them you know the game isn't didn't progress as quickly as it did over here, but it's interesting to see when you do see it, how they either run it traditionally or how they can kind of tailor it to a deeper passing game and things like that. That's pretty cool. I got to check that out. I could, I could send you some videos, man. There's some really interesting stuff and yeah, I mean, they're slinging the ball everywhere. You know, it's not like, you know, some other countries where they don't really know how to throw a spiral, but it's, it's interesting stuff, man. Do you um, have a curation process? Now, because like I saw last week, you had some stuff like single wing from the volunteers, I want to say. And the week mm-hmm. before that was SMU and the Y formation. So do you have like certain things you seek out first that you want to kind of explore? Kind of. 
so like um the the vol stuff and smu stuff it kind of almost uh it's almost just from scrolling in the sense mm-hmm. of like i had somebody reached out they wanted some info on um delaware wing t so i think i was posting wing t before that um some old delaware games from the 60s and 70s they were looking for so it's like hey how can i find belly at a wing t so found some of that stuff and it kind of popped up and suggested uh suggested viewing on youtube then it was like just playing the algorithm like oh here's some southwest conference highlights from the 50s mm-hmm. so found those and i was like oh i forgot about smu's y formation this was really cool i watched this last year found some clips of that and ended up seeing them running quads it's like i forgot about this turned into watching dutch myers tcu empty and then um they had an old orange bowl from first uh tennessee texas versus tennessee in 50 and it was, mm-hmm. watched that and then it turned into uh found the guy with a bunch of uh ut single wing film and was like well i'm just gonna watch a bunch of this because this is fun to watch so it starts kind of planned and then just kind of wherever youtube takes me and it, it varies like in season i really didn't have a ton of time to watch a lot of that stuff because i was watching our stuff a little bit of time on vacation to watch some of it so it's really whenever i have time now at this point to kind of just watch some of it speaking of dutch myers do you think he was the coach that was the most ahead of his time out of anybody from that kind of world war ii era i probably haven't watched enough other people it, mm-hmm. i just remember watching him come out empty in that single wing there i mean they had the wing back but it's like they're five wide throwing essentially like corners and slot fades and it's like it doesn't look that different than the same Purdue offense that Breeze was in that everyone talks about is like the birth of the spread. And so it's like, he's, he's definitely out there. Um, that SMU offense around the same era was ridiculous too, with some of the stuff they were doing in short punt and they go double wing, then they go Y and then they'd go into spread sets. So there, there's just, there's a lot of good coaches that people just forget about Dutch Meyer. I mean, up until about a year and a half, but I had no clue existed. Yeah, that, that Y formation was really interesting. It kind of feels like almost, I mean, they were unbalanced in the videos that I saw, but it kind of looks like if you did a balanced set, it would look like the 49ers in the 80s with the split backs. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of wonder if you could do an offense sort of similar to that. What stuck out to me with that Y formation was, um, it's now it's spread out now, but what Coastal was doing at a split backs with the Y off, App State used to do a bunch of it. Um, and then so did uh, Navy. If you see Navy, a lot of times when they get in the, their spread sets, especially when they're playing other service academies, mm-hmm. they'll go split back to the Y off. And it's almost like really similar, like a spread single wing or like really similar to that Y set. Did uh, did Oregon used to do some of that early on, like in the early 2000s with Chip Kelly? I believe so. I, I'd have to double check. With like uh, Dennis Dixon or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a fun time to watch Oregon football. Is there like a Holy grail of football films that you've been looking for that you would really like to get your hands on? Um, Pop Warner at Carlisle would be really cool. Yeah. What other era of football do you think you would have liked to have coached in? The seventies would have been cool. Um, Just after the split back beer kind of started taking off and then the wish, like the innovation of the wishbone and just kind of that whole movement toward triple option, but also similar to like 
the single wing and similar to the T when they came out, it's more of a passing formation than people thought. Like if you watch film on this, uh, people talking about both those offenses uh, at the time, it was, it was innovative because you had more passing options. So th- that was, that would be cool. That would definitely be interesting. Um, just from the schematic standpoint of those things. I mean, um, that's, that's probably my go-to or may, maybe the thirties just for more single wing, mm-hmm. different, different style there. Is there one scheme in particular that you would like to see come back in vogue in its purest form? Not just kind of like, I, I know a lot of people make the comment that this would never work today, but would, it, would you ever like to see a team just try this kind of offense? It'd be interesting to see the wishbone. Like somebody really commit to that. I know like the flex bone similar, but um, kind of the same thing that makes it flex bone positive. Um, in the sense of, you know, four vertical and, you know, still be able to get in the wishbone sets with the, with motion, the same thing of it just being static and you not know where, where it's going to go anytime is good and bad, you know? So that'd be interesting to see somebody really wheeling and dealing in the wishbone again. Yeah. I think the only time I've seen it within the past few years was when Texas, they ran a trick play out of it where mm-hmm. the, uh, the fullback, I think started to motion and then they threw it back and then did a flea flicker. Um, going back to the Carlisle Pop Warner, like holy grail of footage. I mean, have you begun to research, look anything into that to see if there was any sort of reels that you could get your hands on? I've looked just more so same way. I've always kind of looked for everything like on YouTube. So mm-hmm. I've seen like some specials, um, for grad work. I had to, to read up on it, which mm-hmm. was, was pretty cool. Kind of, um, just the concepts in it and just, I mean, shoot uh hidden ball like what they were doing at carlisle was like insane forward pass hidden ball and they're competing against the best schools in the country at the time maybe equivalent of like a d3 school going and and beating sec schools right now so that that would be really impressive to see uh who is your favorite nfl team to watch from a scheme perspective that's a tough one um varies I like watching Shanahan's run game, I mean, what he does, kind of heavier sets, but also lighter sets. All those Shanahan guys are really just fun to watch, and they all do things kind of differently, though, like McVay with the 11P stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the floor mixes in more RPO stuff. Um, so all that's really interesting to me. Um, what about college football team? Coastal's been fun to watch, just kind of how they combine things. Um, as a whole, Bama's been fun to watch. They're kind of their growth from like I remember Greg McElroy and them being pro style to like wheeling and dealing in the spread now. Um, I absolutely I was enamored with Iowa State's defense for a while. Mm-hmm. Still am. The three safety stuff I think is awesome. Um and people forget that similar concept wise, um Tyson Vite, their linebackers coach. Uh, he he was a GA at West Virginia when Rich Rod was there, and they were running stack three safeties back then. So that it still goes back to that, and I I liked watching those West Virginia teams. So I mean that's been fun to watch. Um, and then Georgia's defense. I mean the past couple of years, this year in particular, has just been like wow, great scheme. They always have answers for everything. Same thing with Bama's all, all those. Saving disciples on defense are fun to watch.
Now, as far as like the um, the future of football, I mean, what schemes on both offense and defense do you think are going to become uh, come into play and really kind of take storm? I guess either in terms of schemes or maybe even personnel too. I think the big one, and you're starting to see it, like I thought Ohio State did a really good job of it in the uh, last playoff and their last season, the way kind of days expanded that. A lot more under center, heavier sets, and unbalanced. You're seeing a lot of 12 personnel unbalanced. Uh, Buffalo was doing it when Leipold was there. They're doing it at Kansas now. Um, but really, everyone's gotten so used to up-tempo, 11 personnel, multiple sets. Now you're starting to see people kind of mix tempo in 12 sets, at least what, what I'm seeing, or it sticks out to me. So it's like, hey, you're going to put play with a base nickel, try and fit 21 personnel runs out of 12P. Or, hey, we're going to come out and unbalanced, but we're going to sugar huddle so you don't have time to ID if it's an unbalanced or balanced set. Um, those sorts of things have been sticking out to me. And then, two, um, at least in the league we're in, I don't know if it's as common everywhere else, different quarterbacks. I know Dartmouth has consistently had two quarterbacks um, shoot for at least four years. Really? Um, one guy who's really kind of more of like a wildcat guy, but is a passing threat. He's listed as a quarterback. Um, and then also a true drop back, like traditional style offense. Um, we've done some of it. I know this past year, Brown didn't do it as much, but they'll play with two quarterbacks on the field at times. When James Perry was at Princeton, he would put three quarterbacks on the field at times. Um, so, I mean, that, that was always kind of interesting of even just figuring out a way to label it. and then. Uh, I mean, the Cards did a little bit of that, too, last year. They put Kyler in. OU, I forget what play in the Rose Bowls in the overtime. They had Kyler play tailback with Baker, and um, and they were running, like, a, a speed option pass where that he could pitch it, throw it, or Kyler could keep it or he could throw it. So there's stuff like that of just kind of more athletic guys who can kind of do it all either whether that's blocking in space, throwing, running, catching, um, whether that be tight ends who can do fullback stuff or quarterbacks who can be do athletic stuff. I think that's probably the next step and then mix in the tempo. Yeah, I've always thought it would be interesting to kind of see if all six skill position players could be amoebic in the sense where, you know, you have a quarterback that all of a sudden on the next play goes to receiver, the tight end goes to quarterback, the running back is at a tight end. I don't know if you could do that at this level because the size is so different, but like, I think you had this at like Cornell. Don't you have a like sprint football? Yeah. Like a lightweight. I, I feel like at that level, you could certainly do that. And I think that would be like enjoyable to see because that it kind of talks a little bit of like the razzle dazzle ragtag aspect of the game that I think would be really interesting to see. That, that was kind of the thing I started noticing watching, like when we were talking about the split tee and like the halfback could throw, like, how do you practice this? Cause like the quarterbacks, the lead blocker here, but sometimes he's throwing, sometimes he's running sometimes they're throwing him the ball same thing with all the backs it's like it's almost like you're saying one ambiguous position fullbacks quarterbacks halfbacks go over there you guys are working throwing catching and blocking but yeah I think Frank Gifford for the Giants one year almost like uh tied the the pass the quarterback of the team which is crazy to think like a guy who just constantly does the same sort of halfback pass (laughs) is getting the same amount of yards 
Uh, well, that's all the questions I have, man. I really enjoyed you coming on the show. And I would imagine all the listeners now know your page, but do you want to give it out just in case we have any new guy, new people joining us? Yeah, sure. Uh, the page is old football film. It's at film historic on Twitter. Well, cool, really man. appreciate you having me, man. It's been awesome talking some ball. Um, you know, really appreciate it. Yeah. Likewise, Kevin, take it easy, man. You have a good one.